0: Rolling. Rolling? We're rolling.
1: Okay, well, let's do this thing. Hey, what's up, church people? One of my favorite things about being a pastor is getting to have amazing conversations with people that are just awesome. Something that I've seen to be true over the years is that church is just better with people that you know love and trust. So this podcast is taking a hack at turning up the relational temperature around here. A chance for you to live through me as I get coffee with church people. My name is Colby Allen. I get to be on the pastoral staff here at College Heights and today I'm joined by my friend Greg Morrell. Hey Greg what's up? I'm here. You're here man. Ready to go. You're here. How's that couch? It's very
0: comfortable. It's very comfortable. You're the first one that's
1: commented on the couch.
0: I may, like I said before, I may fall asleep. It's very nice.
1: (laughs) I love it, man. I love it. Welcome to my office. It's beautiful. I like this. I'm glad you do. I'm glad you do. So you've been very complimentary since you've gotten here, and I... I appreciate that. No,
0: so. I'm an electronic freak, and this is tripping my... <laughs> the tripping wires my, everywhere. All my switches are on. It's like, I love this it. This is amazing. Yeah,
1: I love it, man. Well, hey, let's jump right into this thing. Tell us about Lil' Greggy.
0: Lil' Greggy. Lil' Greggy's still alive, still lives in still here. Still kicking. Yep, he's still alive. He gets to come out and play now. Um, and uh, he was born 1956, Columbus, Ohio, on a dark and stormy night. I, from what I've been told, yeah. uh, lightning thunder and a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of trepidation on my dad and mom's part. And, uh, were you there first? I was there first and I was the practice run or the trial run <laughs> or however you want to put it. I, I was the Guinea pig, the, <laughs> the, the, the whole deal. And, uh, yeah, and, and we lived uh, 10 years in Columbus. Uh, my sister was born two years after me. And um, then my brother was born 10 years after me. And so we've, we have a decade between us. And, uh, and right after he was born, we started moving around the country. Moved to Maryland, uh, moved to Denver, uh, moved to Southern California. And all of that happened within four or five-year period. Yeah, what was going on? Why? Dad um, had been national sales manager for a company called Ross Laboratories. He was the national sales manager for one product, uh, Similac, which all babies at some point in time were drinking. Yeah. Uh, and um, long story short, his boss passed away the new boss demoted him and he didn't like it so he went on a job hunt and it took sounds like s- joseph right yeah it it was a lot like that so he ended up in denver on a job hunt we ended up in southern california he took a job as president of a dental company there they made braces um and uh it's called ormco i don't even know if ormco's still around or not but uh They were a big concern back then. And then he got headhunted by a company up in the Napa Valley. And that's where we ultimately landed. It was a dental firm. And uh, he got headhunted up there. So by the time I was 14, yeah, so in a period of about four years, we had made all those moves. By the time I was 14, we ended up in Napa. Mm. And that's kind of where we landed for the next few years. Uh, By the time I was 18... I was ready to go to college and ended up in Santa Barbara and spent seven years in Santa Barbara on and off. Uh, summers, I went back to Napa for the most part, or yeah. I lived in Canada. I was I helped manage a fishing lodge up in Canada during my college years. Hmm. So all of that was going on, and uh, Santa Barbara was fantastic, uh, absolutely unattainable. Now, you couldn't move back there. You, right. You, uh it's just so expensive, but it's a beautiful town. And, uh, college was fun, a uh, little wild, you know. It was it was uh, it was California in the seventies. Yeah. So uh, it got a little crazy down there. By the time nineteen eighty rolled around, I moved back up to Napa, and my dad had started his own dental company by then. And I went into business with dad as not as a partner, but as an employee. Mm. Uh, although we were we were Partners, yeah. Um, but uh, I spent 13 years in the dental field at that point, mm-hmm. point. and uh, it was it was a good time. Um, there were some. The business was good. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I was struggling yeah. life wise, yeah. But the business was was yeah. really good. And living in the Napa Valley, I mean, who who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah. You know, it was it was pretty nice. Yeah.
1: And. How old were you when you started working with your dad?
0: I moved back up into Napa when I was 21. So you worked there
1: 13 years. I worked there
0: 13
1: years. Yeah. What did you do? Were you managing the, the office side? Were you, I mean, sales. qualified to be, okay, you're in sales. Okay.
0: I did sales, but I also managed the manufacturing, hmm. uh, the shop. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wore two hats. Cool. It's actually longer than 13 years now that I think yeah. about it. Cause I didn't leave until I didn't leave there until 93. So no, that was 13. 13. Yeah. yeah. So yeah.
1: what did, uh, what did home life look like in those earlier years and in, in Columbus? And then as you guys were moving around, what was home like for you?
0: Dad was, became a traveling salesman. He used to be when I was between the time I was, uh, a baby and 10 years old, he was home every night. I mean, he would have a sales um, convention, I guess, once every four or five months, but he was mostly home. So I got the wait till your father gets home talk a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. and then he would be home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a scary thing. You right. Know? But yeah, um, home life was okay. It was, we had a fairly, nuclear family, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, uh, but it was, I mean, you know, thinking back through it, there was quite a bit of dysfunction in the family, um, alcohol abuse and, uh, but everything was upper middle class, you know, I mean, it was, uh, on the outside white picket fence on the inside, uh, a little bit chaotic.
1: Yeah. The alcohol abuse, I mean, was that was that closeted? Was it, you know, were they...
0: It was to the yeah. neighbors. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we were told they don't... Neighbors shouldn't know what goes on in our house. Yeah. You know, and I, I found that to be a common um, refrain in dysfunctional families. Like, there's a lot of no-talk rules. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't talk about what happens yeah. in the house. Um, so... There were some alcohol-fueled arguments, alcohol-fueled behaviors, you know. Um, Nothing physically abusive. Uh, Certainly some emotional abuse was going on. We didn't know it. We just thought all this was normal, you know. And for the most part, I kind of felt like I had a fairly normal, quote-unquote, childhood you know, I mean, we went outside and played with our friends and ran around and went to school and, you know, did everything kids should do, catch yeah. tadpoles. And well,
1: I mean, the dysfunction is normal, right? It, is, it, is it not?
0: It was normal.
1: Average, normal. It's like yeah. most of yeah. us are operating in in some, you know, varying degrees of dysfunction. Yeah. And so it's. It isn't you were very normal. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we yeah. are very normal. I yeah. heard a guy open a lecture once and he's and he asked that question. He goes, What is normal? Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. we were a normal family. Yep. We you know and what what we strive to be now in my family is is to be healthy, mm-hmm. which is different than being a normal I think it's very different. Yeah. Yeah, real different.
1: Hmm. I I think I like that distinction there. You know, not normal and irregular, but normal versus healthy.
0: Right. You know? Right. Exactly.
1: Hmm. What was faith like in your childhood years?
0: It was really, you know, I've had a chance to think back on that. And, and I think I've come to some conclusions about it. We grew up Uh, Presbyterian church. Mm Uh, dad was a Christian church when he was a boy. He was baptized, I believe at nine or 11. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I think it was 11 years old. Uh, mom grew up church Christ non-instrumental. So a little bit more stringent, you know, a little bit more rigid. Uh, and, and her mom was church Christ non-instrumental all her life. Uh, but when mom and dad, um, Met, married, ended up in uh, Columbus, Ohio. They started going to a Presbyterian church there, and they hung out with the Presbyterians all their all their lives. Yeah, um, I mean they they were connected to the Presbyterian church their whole life. Do you
1: think that was an intentional thing, or is just yeah, we got connected with these friends that go to a Presbyterian church, and that's just where we
0: landed. Um, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. I think that. Um they found a church that was close to home mm-hmm. in Columbus and it was Presbyterian. And they just gravitated in yeah. that direction yeah. from then on, right. you know. Uh, they had a good experience there. Um, I remember going to Sunday school when I was a boy, you know, and learning about all the Bible characters and, yep. and uh, going to summer, you know, Bible school. yeah. And uh, we had what I would consider at this point, a fairly shallow education in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure about mom and dad. You know where they were at. I've uh, um, read some of the sermons. Mom saved the sermons from hmm. some of these guys. Uh, Interesting. And and had them in her, uh, you know, in her keepsake box, like notes,
1: or they would they full would print on, off the their their manuscripts.
0: It was full full manuscript, typewritten manuscript. Yeah. And sometimes mimeographed, yeah. But uh, she saved some of those. What's that mean? Mimeographed. Mimeographed. Oh, that that would be one you yeah. don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the mimeograph uh, machine was a was a drum, and it had ink on it, yeah. and you could turn that drum, and huh. it would it would pick up a piece of paper and copy what you were copying. Huh. Yeah. And we used to like to smell the chemicals. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, your kid smells yeah. good. Yeah. You have to bring that back. Right. We all had, we had those machines yeah. in, uh, in, uh, school as well. That's cool. Yeah. So we'd have mm-hmm. to run Every, every kid in class would want to run down and get the copies, you know, because <laughs> they smelled so good. Um, no, but, uh, I remember going through the Presbyterian form of what would, we would, uh think of as a catechism mm-hmm. you know yeah, i was i was probably 12 when i went through that and that was the first time i sensed that god was really
1: mm-hmm.
0: there yeah you know and that and that something was happening beyond my ability to see with any of my senses yeah you know that there was a deeper Something happening, yeah. Uh, when I went through that, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. No baptism. Yeah. Well, there was, it was a sprinkling. Yeah, you know what they did, and uh, we kind of graduated catechism. Yeah, uh, and I don't really remember a lot about the classes that we had. I mean, I couldn't tell you one question or one mm-hmm. thing we learned, but I do remember the graduation uh, ceremony for yeah. us was. Um, solemn. Hmm. I remember it being really solemn, and and like something really special is happening here. You know, like we were being in, introduced into a deeper thing happening. Yeah, yeah. I, that's all I can describe right now. You know, uh, as I remember it. Yeah. And uh, and then that was, you know, I'm in high school, or I, excuse me, I was in junior high. And so uh, that was fairly soon forgotten because none of the other kids in junior high that I knew of was going through, were going through anything yeah. like that. You know, we were all looking at girls and playing sports and yep. playing rock and roll. We all had found out about rock and roll, of course. Yep, It was early rock years, and so we were all into that. And all my friends were um, doing those things, you know, Who were the,
1: who were those bands that you were, you were really into in those years?
0: First band, I was a, I was a little kid. I used to remember I turned on the radio when we lived in Columbus between the time I was probably about seven or eight years, 10 years old, right in that era. And at night you could, you could, uh, capture stations out of Chicago Hmm. and you could capture all these stations, you know, and I'd listen to this and you know, throw the covers over me so nobody could catch me being awake, you know, at night. And I would listen to these stations from, and I would love to hear them from all over the, uh, the that area of the country. Um, it was amazing what you could suck in, you know, when the skip was going at night. Hmm. But um, the bands that I started with, the uh, <laughs> I remember seeing the Beach Boys on Ed Sullivan in hmm. 1964. Okay. So I was eight. Yeah. Uh, and I remember seeing. Oh no, it was the Be- the Beatles. Yeah. Did I say the Beach Boys? You said the Beach Boys. Yeah. I meant the Beatles. Yeah. The Beach Boys was the first album I bought. Um, and then, um, I remember when I really started getting into the rock scene. I bought an album from Cream, Eric Clapton, <laughs> and I bought one from uh, the Rolling Stones. That was early, early. Yeah. And then it just took off from there. Uh, Iron Butterfly came out with Inigata de DeVita, and the rest is history. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm a big rocker. I, I love progressive rock. I love that whole genre, you mm. know. Uh, it's complex, and it kind of gets into my head and, in a way mm. that, you know, um, there's a lot of elements to it that that uh, capture my brain cells and yeah. and— Make them fire, you know. So I like listening to that kind of yeah. that kind of music still.
1: <laughs> so, okay, you go through it's not quite confirmation, but a catechism type of deal. Mm-hmm. You remember it being really meaningful. Mm-hmm. You you transition, you know, from junior high to high school, and did your faith stick with you? Was it? something you put into practice or was it uh it's it started to fall away
0: i wanted it to stick with yeah. me i believed that there was a god and i and i had a desire for a deeper yeah meaningful um and i felt like i was connected hmm. to god yeah but there was a lot of there was a, a there were a lot of things going on um, that w- were attractive to my flesh. Yeah, and I you know since no flesh walks by sight. Yeah, and so whatever I could see, touch, acquire, possess, I started going after. Yeah, you know, um, acquisition. Yeah, and uh, at first it started with things, um, you know, acquiring. Guitars or acquiring, um, just stuff. You know, I collected uh, like model cars and yeah. and and electronic stuff. I started collecting electronics, uh, stereo stuff, and uh, recording equipment and all that stuff. And, and uh, yeah, I I started my my flesh was. Really into acquisition, and and yeah, it pulled me away from God. It really did, Uh, and it was rough, you know, because my faith wavered. Uh, I would even say, in biblical terms, now it became shipwrecked. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time I was twenty-one, I was way out there. Yeah, you know, way far away from the church. Yeah, Um, when I left for school at eighteen, I had intention. Of uh, going to church when I got down to Santa Barbara to college, and I thought Santa Barbara, you know, it's on the beach, the mountains are right there. It's going to be this kind of idyllic uh, place. I I had enrolled as an English major, so I you know uh, I felt like I was going to have a peaceful kind of the waves and the mountains, and I was going to write poetry mm. and be. <laughs> You know, nothing like that happened. Yeah. As soon as I got down there, I realized this was one of the major party schools in California. Yeah. And I jumped right in.
1: That's interesting. You were, you were, you were aiming towards a quiet, peaceful setting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> now, so when when it's not that, do you go hold up? Like, this is a little loud and crazy for me. Or just sucked you right in, like gone.
0: Well, um, I have to backtrack a little bit. I had gotten into when I was about fifteen. Um, I had had my first beer, mm-hmm. and I had smoked my first uh, joint. So marijuana and beer were hand in hand for probably two years already, mm. maybe three, mm-hmm. almost three years by the time I was 18. Yeah. yeah. And while I was, we called ourselves the weekend warriors, you know, I mean, we, we <laughs> drank beer or we smoked uh, weed on the weekends, yeah. you know, we didn't really do that m- much stuff on weekdays because we're still students, you yeah. know, I mean, and, and we were students, the friends of, mind that hung out with me we were students who felt like we still had that enough performance oriented mindset that yeah. we wanted to get good grades right. and we wanted to hang in there and we knew we were going to go to college so we did the things that we needed hmm. to do to qualify for yeah. those things yeah but I guess you know in retrospect when I went to Santa Barbara I thought I would kind of leave some of that party stuff behind right, right. you know and do it this because hmm. I was going to do this big geographic start fresh nobody knew me i yep. could i could get a clean slate and do yep. all that i didn't know it was called a geographic at the time but that's mm-hmm. really what was going on mm-hmm. in my head you're thinking hey i can have a fresh start you know i don't have to drag all of this you know <laughs> frivolity shenanigans into college mm-hmm. um got down to santa barbara and i would say in the first Five days, I realized that partying isn't going to stop. Yeah. I mean, I was surrounded with it in the dorm.
1: Yeah.
0: It was constant, constant. It was no longer just on the weekends. Yeah. Uh, you could walk down our dorm hall and smell marijuana at any hour of yep. the day. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was just the party was on and I was going to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I was too weak. To, mm. to walk away from it at that point. Still wanted to get good grades, still wanted to, you know, uh, still wanted to do that performance thing because you don't want to get kicked out of school, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but the party was really on. I was 18 and, you know, and it was, it was crazy down there. It was just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of guys um, just partied themselves out of school. Mm. They were gone, you know, first semester, they were just gone. Yeah. yeah. That's how bad it was. Yeah. So what's next? I spent, uh, it was funny, um, after my freshman year, my, par- my parents must have been like <laughs> freaking out because mom says, I think it would be good if you spent a summer at your uncle's fishing lodge in Canada. We're gonna get you out of she didn't did they s-
1: know you were partying pretty hard in- oh
0: I had a I have a feeling they had a feeling yeah I yeah I mean and they i did you try to hide it or were you uh, oh absolutely yeah, yeah. I mean that was the whole that's what we grew up with was yeah. hiding it yeah I mean yep. that was the that was part of the dysfunction, you know. I, I didn't try to hide it from my friends there. But, yeah, you try to hide it from your you right. know, your primary, especially if they're paying you to be there. You know, I mean, you, you don't want to let that out because right. you're having too much fun. And uh, so I left for Canada probably in May. Yeah. It was in May. Yeah. And went up to northern Ontario and spent three months uh, working in a fishing lodge. There was there was no way to get there except by boat or float plane. You could not drive to this fishing lodge, and it was amazing. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. Um, the only thing was is that the partying continued to come with us because I don't know if you've ever uh, been to a fishing lodge before with a bunch of guys, but... Uh, Beer is on the menu 24 7. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so what they, what my mom thought they were sending me away from, they really sent me into the professional. (laughs) You (laughs) You were amateur before, and now you're. uh, Now I'm hanging out with the pros, you know. And so, uh, and there were some mornings you woke up going, man, I don't know if I can hang with these guys, but uh, you learn pretty quick, quickly. So, uh, it was a, it was a lot of partying up at the fishing lodge. It was a hard work too. I mean, we were working hard and, and, and then we, you know, uh, would party hard as well.
1: Fishing lodge. Are you, are you hosting people who are coming on fishing trips or are you like commercial fishing, like catching like
0: out? We were hosting. Okay. Uh, my uncle owned this lodge with three other men. Okay. And it was really what it turned into was a semi-private club for their friends out of Michigan. Yeah, And they would come north for a week or two and yeah. spend a week or two at the lodge. We had, uh, I think, eight cabins maybe, and then a main cabin where I stayed. And uh, the first year I was, in a, I w- I was working, they had... They had uh, hired a man and his wife to run it, so I was kind of working for them. And then uh, the second year I went up, which was two summers later, I ran the mm. show, uh, and it was and it was amazing. I mean, I wouldn't trade what I learned there or what I saw there for yeah. anything. Right. As far as life skills and the beauty of nature, and it was amazing. Yeah. But I. If I ever had to go back and do it again, I sure would watch myself because um, that's where, and I'll tip my uh, hand right now. That's where my alcoholism really yeah. took root. Yeah. I mean, it it was there. I was drinking alcoholically earlier, mm-hmm. but that's when it really yeah got me. Yeah. And then I realized, you know, and it wasn't that I had to do it every day but I realized if I did do it it was never enough I wasn't going to stop I mean if we had a drink you know on a Saturday night it wasn't going to just be a drink it was going to be we're going to keep drinking until we can
1: yeah
0: or we run out yeah you know and since town was 10 miles away and 4 miles of that was by water <laughs> you, wanted you to, did run out you yeah. want no you wanted to make sure you mm. never ran out mm. you always brought a whole boatload of beer back with you so yeah, yeah. beer and gas you got to yeah. have gas for the boat. so anyway but yeah i that was my first summer out of out of college uh, or out of my freshman mm-hmm. year went back to school uh, spent sophomore year with a with a bunch of guys and they were, they were all very much into the, uh, marijuana scene, mm-hmm. which at the time wasn't anything like it is today.
1: No.
0: Um, I mean, you're going to prison. I mean, there, if you get caught with this stuff, you're, you know, yeah. it's over, but there was so much of it around, you know, I mean, it was like, uh. And I I think probably mid 70s to early 80s the police started kind of winking at it a little bit yeah but still if if you were caught with a you know a heavy quantity of it you were probably going to prison so mm-hmm. it was a little scary yeah. and, and my roommates were into this I on the other hand didn't buy it I didn't you know I would I would participate yeah uh, if it was offered mm-hmm. but I wasn't I, you know, alcohol was still kind of my main deal. Yeah, you know, I mean, that was my drug of choice was alcohol. Yeah. it was uh, cheap and it was legal. Yeah, and you know, uh, I, you weren't going to you weren't going to go to prison for it. Yeah, you know. So
1: you're studying English still?
0: Uh, no, I <clears throat> I found out that English wasn't going to be what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I thought it was going to be more of a creative writing thing. And frankly, I wasn't that creative. Yeah. I was a good writer, but not creatively. Yeah. Um, I was more of a, um, nonfiction type, Mm. but I thought that I was, I was going to go that direction. And by my sophomore year, somewhere along the line, I shifted over into communication, radio and television, Mm. communication and small group. Um, you know, how do how do uh, groups of people, you know, do it and effectively do it? Yeah. You know, how how do you how do you build a team? Yeah. How do you how do you talk with each other? You yeah. know, what works, what doesn't. So I I headed over to communication. That's ultimately what I graduated with was a communication degree. Yeah. Which I found out that in a dollar twenty five gets you a cup of coffee at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but uh, there, people get them all the time. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, it's almost like, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to communication. Yeah, yeah. sounds good. Well,
1: yeah, what were you, what were you aiming at? And you know, I, in those years, you're thinking, what do I want to be? This, what do you? What are you I at?
0: Wa- I wanted to be a DJ. Yeah, I wanted to go into radio. Yeah, that's how much I was into the rock and roll scene. And when, when I lived, when I was in high school, there was a lot of underground radio in the Bay area. We lived in Napa, an hour away from San Francisco. So we got all those great stations out of San Francisco and Berkeley. Yeah. I mean, you know, underground, um, it was, we called it underground radio. It wasn't middle of the road, album oriented rock stuff yet, mm. the, the uh, The corporations hadn't gotten their hands in it. Yeah. You know, to, and so the DJs were very, they were the coolest people on the planet, we thought. You know, they would play anything they wanted to play. Yeah. Uh, Actually, I got introduced to radio uh, when we lived in Los Angeles. Well, we lived in Yorba Linda. There was a little station in Pasadena called KPPC FM, and they were the finest. Example of underground radio that you would ever have heard. I mean, they were wild off the wall, played everything. You know, you'd hear um, Dr. Demento and Weird Al Yankovic and hmm. stuff like that every once in a while. You would get, uh, uh, of course, crazy stuff Captain Beefheart, Frank Zappa. Um, when did
1: Weird Al come on the scene? Because I, that's a fascinating like overlap between our ages yes, because we are, let's see, 34 years apart. Is that right? And yet he was a part of my growing up. Like I listen to Weird Al a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah, and And he got started with Dr. Demento. Yeah. And Dr. Demento was around when I was, what was I, 13? I was 13 years old, I think, 12 and 13, when we started listening to KPPC. They were only on the air for a short period of time. They were super influential, though, up and down the coast. Hmm. And and they, oddly enough, uh, had a little radio studio in it, the basement of a Presbyterian church in Pasadena. So uh, they, w- it was an interesting group of guys. It was very counterculture. Yeah. Of course, the Vietnam War was going on. Mm. Super counterculture. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was... Uh,
1: yeah, fifty six. I was. Born. You'd have been 56. too young, right? You'd have been too young to be drafted. Barely. Barely, yeah.
0: Barely. They, I, I can't. Don't quote me on this. I think they took boys three years before I graduated from high okay. school, yeah, and then they stopped You're right there. But we were still. They were still doing the lottery. Yeah. So you know, your numbers are getting drawn, just in case. You know. And I remember that it was scary. Yeah. Being a sophomore in high school yeah, thinking, right. "Hey man, you could end up being overseas." Yeah. You know, fighting people you don't even know. Yeah. You know, it's like or you don't even know why. Yeah. That was a it was a very uh there was a lot of trepidation, mm. you know, in in high school yeah. over that. Yeah. And there were guys who were in my high school who had gone while I was a freshman. So, you know, it was still a, it was a very real thing going on. Uh, in, in all of this, all of the mass media, we were, my friends and I were looking at was Rolling Stone magazine, KPPC FM radio, all this counterculture stuff, which was highly Mm anti-war, you know? Uh, and, and that was a very rough time in our country's history, man. Yeah. Really was. Um, Yeah. Hmm.
1: So you want to be a DJ, love the music scene. What derailed that?
0: I started working at the uh, radio station in, uh, on the UCSB. Uh, it was called KCSB and I went in to start working there and doing some news stuff. Um, couple of interesting guys were there. Greg Drust, uh, he was uh, the jazz guy, and we had him in cl- our classes, and he was amazing, uh, knew everything about every jazz cat who ever came down the pike, man. I mean, he, he, was ma- and he was blind, and he knew everything in that studio was laid out so he could find it and put it on tapes, wow. albums, everything. Goodness. He was an amazing guy. And then, uh, Sean Hannity got his start at KCSB. Mm. Uh, and that was after I, I left there. I, I think that was after I left there anyway. So those were a couple of, couple of deals. And it's interesting that Hannity got his start there because he's, that was a very liberal, uh, liberal arts college, you know? Um, but I, I worked probably two or three programs, news programs there and I saw the most cutthroat behavior hmm. out of the other uh students that were working that radio station and I said, I'm not gonna work in this industry. Yeah. I'm not gonna it it didn't take me but two or three shows to say, I'm not gonna do this with these people. Yeah. I don't wanna work with people who who were like that. Yeah. You know, and if that's what it was going to take to, you know, climb the ladder of whatever success, you know, uh, whatever that meant in the radio field, I didn't want any part of it. So I finished up my uh, degree in communications and uh, my roommate and I, my roommate from my freshman year and I, we both graduated at the same time and we both went to work. Uh, in retail uh, down on State Street in Santa Barbara at Long's Drugstore, mm. which was a kind of a glorified Walgreens at the time. Yeah. It was a West Coast concern, West Coast and Hawaii. Uh, Long's was a, a big deal, and I and it was taken over later by CVS. So uh, I believe CVS bought out all of the Long's Drugstore. Mm. But that's, that's what I did right. When I graduated, we went to work retail. You know, yeah. Put on our green jackets and started tagging goods. And, yep, yep. Doing all that stuff, and then we spent our uh, nights finding parties to go yeah. to. You know, yep. so that was I was twenty one when we graduated. Yeah.
1: So, so knowing you a little bit over the last few years, um, you've talked about your. Um, your days of alcoholism and and so tell us kind of the, the the story on that. Let's focus on that a little bit. What did okay? What was that?
0: As I mentioned, we began as it was. I wouldn't say innocent. That that would be a wrong word. Naive mm. would be a better word to use there. Yep. Naively, we thought we were just you know. Having fun. Yeah. We were just having fun. Yeah. And it felt good. You know, I mean, having a few beers, it felt really good. And uh, what I realized was is that my brain thought about alcohol and weed in this sense. If once is good, twice is going to be twice Mm -hmm. as good. Mm -hmm. That's how my brain thought. When, when in reality, there was probably uh, a very small limitation where you would reach the point where you wanted to be. And then if you could stop drinking, you would stay at that, you know. Yeah. Uh, for me, if once is good, twice is going to be twice as good. If two are good, four times is going to be and and you would just keep it up. Yeah. diminishing
1: and returns. Dim, <laughs> it says d- the yeah. that does not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just more and more to right. achieve the same thing.
0: Yeah. And and then you begin to develop a tolerance. Yeah. which I didn't realize was going on. Uh it took more to get you to where you needed to be. Um I mean, I suppose in retrospect if I had really thought it through, I would have been going, why is everybody else in the room asleep and I'm the only one left awake?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And I'm the only one who thinks, hey, it's not 1 o'clock yet. We could go on a beer run. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. Um, something was different about the way yeah. my body began to process the alcohol. Mm. Of course, I would, f- I would gravitate toward people. Who processed alcohol the same way I did. yeah. Who could hang with me. Who could hang with me. Yeah. Um, Oddly enough, many of us who find ourselves trapped in in the throes of alcoholism end up working in the alcohol industry somehow. And by the time I was a junior in college, I was selling beer out of a, a... place called the six-pack shop yeah and it was a sandwich and a beer place two blocks from the beach so we had a lot of surfers come in we had a lot of tons of college kids come in just off the the border of the campus of UCSB is a little town called Isla Vista and it's a about a one square mile uh, enclave of apartments and there's about 15,000 people. Wow. That live, you know, they're all students. Yeah. And so it's a big student, you know, uh s- town and they've got a lot of uh you know, very uh bohemian stores and and uh that's where we bought all our records and yeah. that's where we bought all our cool frisbees and our bandanas and you know, whatever. Whatever else we tied on our dogs, I guess. Everybody, everybody. I just remembered the name of the park there. It's unrepeatable, by the way. I can't can't tell you. But you could look it up. Go ahead and tell me the name of (laughs) the. I'm afraid it's called. Dog (laughs) Uh, And that's a true true name you can look that up on on google um uh, anyway isla vista was a strange little town man strange town so i just remembered that's where 1970 the bank of america they had a they had a riot there in Mm -hmm. iv um and a kid got shot on the steps of the bank there it wasn't steps it was a Sidewalk, and killed there. Uh, I mean, this this Vietnam thing was serious. Yeah, up and down the coast, especially yeah. in California. Well, it was all over. I mean, it was yeah. all the college campuses. Yeah. So, um, anyway, I worked at the six pack shop. Uh, that story came around uh, in 2017 to to be meaningful. God played it, use that. Uh, job experience there uh, in 2017 to to let me know he was around, which yeah. was kind of cool. Mm. Um, How so? This is way farther up in the story, but I'll uh, I'm I can't wait to tell it. Yeah. Um, I got involved with. Uh, at 31 years old with a group of like-minded people who gave me a uh pretty good outline of how to stay sober. Yeah. Not how to get sober. That's not what the outline was about. Mm. And and somebody'll have to read between the lines about what I'm speaking of. But it was how to live as How many sp-
1: steps on that outline?
0: <laughs> I think a dozen. Yeah. Yeah. Um they uh yeah, and, and people can find this outline, you know, if they want really want to. It's, it's not about how to get sober, although that, it was helpful. Yeah. But it was how to live as a sober man, mm. which was huge for me. Because I had spent, from the time I was 15 to the time I was 31, living as a, a drinking man and living as an alcoholic man. And, and found myself, uh, in a place where, uh, I wasn't going to walk away from it. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to walk away, uh, without going to jail or, or dying from yeah. it. It had me. It yeah. really had me. Um, you know, the Hebrews talks about the sin that so easily entangles mm. and that entanglement is, is like being surrounded by wild beasts. And, um psalms talks about um you know their sin traps them it it holds them uh, the snares uh, the cords you know it has all these terminology for sin how it's like the there's a word picture back in psalms of a, a little birdie getting caught in a fowler snare and that's where i was yeah you know and um I got sober. I started working through those that outline. And there's uh, one of those things in the outline that is called Step 4. And we take a searching and fearless moral inventory, or inventory of ourselves, which I did. at thir- about 31, 32 years old after I um, got myself a mentor who was kind of guiding me through this. And somewhere around... 2016 I did another inventory very intense it was through the the place I was working at God's Resort here in town uh, with uh, Jay and Julie St. Clair Um, and uh, we did a day-long inventory really Uh, and it was a group thing Uh, and I went through it and I realized that there were some things that I was still hanging on to from that time of my uh, falling away that I was kind of proud of, and I didn't like that mm. feeling. I didn't like that feeling at all. That I, w- I was feeling kind of, yeah, well, I got away with this and I got away with that, and you know, uh, and I thought I don't I don't like this. I don't like this feeling of, of this This is a twisted sense of pride. So I talked to someone at the time when I went through this, and I said, I'm not sure who I want to talk to about this, but there is a step five after the step four that says, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So we talk about this, Okay. And it was bothering me enough that I felt like I needed to, now that I had written it out, that I needed to go, you know, admit these things out loud. Uh, so, number one, that it would take some of the power out of it, yeah. um, you know, because you're only as sick as your secrets. And yeah. number two, uh, so that I would uh, have the possibility that God would remove this from me. Because mm. I, you know, I'd carried some of this for a long time. Um, so, but I couldn't find anybody, could not find anybody to talk to. And, and, uh, first of all, I didn't want to admit it to somebody <laughs> that I knew, you know, cause I was embarrassed yeah, and, and maybe some shame was along with that. Uh, and, uh, second of all, I just, I just couldn't see anybody being able to handle some of the stuff that I had to say, yeah. you know, have the maturity and the, and, the confidentiality. So um, my father died, and Mom had called us up and said, why don't we all go to Hawaii? I'll take the whole family. It'll be our deal to kind of decompress from your dad's death, and, and we need to spend some time together. So, okay, man. Mom, if you're paying for it, we're all on board. <laughs> when does the plane leave, right? So we all get over there. And before we left there, I knew we were going to Kauai and I knew that Bethany Hamilton went to this certain church in Kauai and she had uh, written this book and they had done a movie about it called Soul Surfer where she had had her arm bitten off by this shark right, and her pastor had written this book, Soul Surfer, and my daughter, Claire loved Bethany Hamilton, Yeah, read the book, watched the movies. uh, And uh, I said to Carrie, my wife, I said, let's not tell Claire. We'll go to Bethany Hamilton's church the Sunday that we're there. And we got all excited, you know. So we got there, and uh, I was doing a little reading, and and what I read was is Bethany Hamilton had gotten married, and was attending a different church on way on the other side of the island. So now we're not going to see her, but her pastor is still preaching at this church, and he was one who wrote the book. So um, I said, well, Claire will get to meet the author, which will be just, you know, it'll be cool. Not quite as cool, but it'll be cool. So this church ended up being one mile away from our hotel, <clears throat> Excuse me. So we get there. We all get in the car. We get there, and it was you know it took us two minutes to drive there, and we walk up. Well, guess who's not preaching that day? Of course. I think it, I can't remember his name. I think his first name is Rick, and I don't want to mispronounce his last name, but you guys can look it up anyway. Um, so we're sitting there, and I'm a little crestfallen, but I'm going. I'm saying to Claire, "So here we are." This is Bethany Hamilton's old church, and her pastor isn't here today. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but it was still great. I mean, you know, when you go to a new place and they do things differently, but they do things cool. Yeah. And the worship was uh, really sweet. I can, I, I have a hard time thinking about it because it was so genuine, you know, and there were a lot of, <laughs> I mean, it was almost like you would expect it. There were a lot of people wearing Hawaiian shirts, you yeah, know, yeah. a lot of people in sandals and shorts, and it was very relaxed. And, and, uh, and this guy gets up and he starts preaching and his name is Dane Spore. And I remember his name because he becomes a very important part of the story.
1: Hmm.
0: And about at the end of the sermon that he was preaching and he he had a tough subject to preach on but he did a masterful job and at the end of it he said you know something i have something that i think i'd like to share with the congregation that i've been wrestling through and i'm i'm not quite ready to share it yet but i have something that i a confession type of thing that i want to tell the congregation and i didn't hear god speak but I I knew that this was the man I was supposed to talk to about my own issues and to, and to make my confession with him and God. And I, and I felt almost like two hands pushed me in the back and said, that's the guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sitting there going. And I said to myself, you've got to be kidding. That's the guy. Yeah. And it was such an overpowering, louder-than-audible message that I uh, left a message on his answering machine that afternoon and said, could we get together? I've got something I need to you know, um, deal with, and I think you can help me. And, uh, and I emailed him as well. He called me on Monday the next day, and he said, yeah, let's get together. Uh, let's get together tomorrow morning. Well, he picked a coffee shop that was a mile away from our hotel. And I drove down there and my uh, wife and and my daughters were with me and we kind of cut them loose. And Dane and I were standing in line at the, uh, to order our coffee. And by the time we had ordered our coffee, we realized that we had both gone to Santa Barbara at the same time And that I had been selling him beer at the six-pack shop where I worked. 5,000 miles away, God had put us together. And we had the sweetest, I don't know if I can make it through this next part of this. We had the most genuine, sweetest conversation of transparent, this is what's going on in my life. And this is what I've been carrying for all these years that I need to just let go of. And I need God to come in and, and do something in here to take this um, pride away.
1: Mm.
0: And I I won't go any deeper into it than that, but to say that Dane said, well, at the end of my sermon, I said there was something I wanted to talk to My congregation about, and I'll tell you. And we shared these things together in total confidence. Yeah. But it was so cathartic for me to, and to think that, you know, I had to travel 5,000 miles away for God to say, Greg, I know where you are. I'm right here. I got you. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, and I found that, you know, over the course of my, my life, since I, uh, entered into sobriety at 31 years old, that happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I could tell several stories like that. It's like, oh my gosh, this isn't not coincidental. You know, this isn't one of those things that <laughs> you can't just chalk this, these things up to coincidence. Yeah. You know,
1: it makes me think of, um. There, as you're closing out that story, I thought of Hagar, and how she calls God the God who sees me.
0: You know, <laughs> we um, you can you can name your place on Google, yeah. you know, or on Facebook, and if they ask me my location and I'm and I'm Facebooking from home, it says Beer Mm-hmm the well of the living one who sees me. Yeah. That's one of my favorite, favorite stories is Hagar. You know, she's out there and, and I tell, you know, that's happened so many times. I know your name. I know where you are. I know what kind of trouble you're in. And I'm right here in, and I got you. I haven't brought you this far just to drop you. Yeah. It's one of the best, most reassuring messages that I have received over and over and over since, since he grabbed me, uh, you know, in 1987. Yeah. He grabbed me in 87.
1: Yeah. What was that? What was, what was the domino that fell that started the, the process of you becoming sober? The, how
0: did God grab you? Dude, I was living away, (laughs) dude, (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I was living so far outside my core. I was traveling salesman, Um, and, uh, I was drinking on the road. Um, I had several things happen to me that were scarier than all get out. Um, I had begun to have blackout drinking. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what blackout drinking is, I can describe it a couple of ways. One, you wake up the next morning and you don't know how you got where you are and you don't know. And there's gaps missing, uh, in your memory from the night before. Um, uh John Mullaney calls it uh he says blackout drinking is like when your brain goes to sleep and your body is all eye of the tiger oh my goodness <laughs> uh, i may i can make light of this now cuz i'm i'm so far away from it you know um but i also in uh, and, and we have a saying where i come from we don't shut the door on our past mm. because uh, i don't want to hide the The desperation from anybody that that I entered into, and and it was I was desperate and I was lonely and I think the straw that really tipped me over to to the realization I was in real real trouble was when I became, I started having thoughts of suicide. Yeah. Um. And that, and I said, what is what is going on here? I was a fun kid. Yeah. I was creative. You know. I was I was fun, um, you know. I was gentle. I was, you know, um, I was a lot of. I had a lot of good things going on when I was a child. Where did all that go? Yeah. And how come I can't stay in a relationship? You know. How mm. come I, I? It was like a serial dater, and and how come all my friends are married with houses and kids? Yeah. And I'm at 31, looking back, going, Hey. None of that happened to me. I'm, I'm still living in an apartment, you know, and I don't have any money. Yeah, and I was making a lot of money, right? And it was all gone. <laughs> it was all gone. I didn't know, didn't know where it was, yeah. you know, and uh, and traveling around the country and <clears throat> and uh, being involved in wayward relationships, you know, um, but when the when the thoughts of suicide started coming in, that really. Was, it was a riveting awakening to, you know, something's got to change or this is going to end very badly. Yeah. And uh, I had a couple of friends in the world left that I hadn't, you know, just discarded. And I began to talk to them in very short but pointed conversations. I think I'm an alcoholic. That was it. It's as, as a pointed and short as I could get. As I could get. And one of them said to me, "Well, my sister-in-law has an overeating uh, problem, and she got some help over here. Maybe you could get some help over there." <laughs> and sent me to this group of like-minded people that I mentioned before. Yeah. Um, one beggar telling another where to get bread. Right. Yeah. And. I had been in counseling for three years already because of this depression I was in. I found myself in, I, I never connected it to alcohol, hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, we have this malady, this illness, this progressive chronic illness yeah. that that is uh, so ingrained that it and, and you become so much in denial that it will not let you see that it's the booze that's causing yeah. these things in you because you don't want to let that go. That's your coping. It became my coping mechanism. Yeah. It's, it's the thing, you know, that, that uh, you utilize to combat any ill feelings or pain, and, and it works. On a temporary basis, it works really well. But when you start suffering some of the consequences of it, uh, for instance, waking up in a place where you don't know how you got there or laying there in bed and your heart's pounding so fast and hard that you think, I may not wake up in the morning. Yeah, You start having, you know as an older person, 28, 29, 30 years old, and you've been doing this for 10 years or more, wow. and you start having some of these physical and... Uh, psychological and emotional and, and literally historical consequences. Um, yeah, it's, you start thinking about it Mm -hmm. and, and I had seen enough darkness by the time I was 30 and 31.
1: So would you say you met God in that
0: group? (sighs) Yes. I would say I did, yeah. and have, and yeah. continue yeah. to meet God. It's it it has been a I'm uh, I'm 67, so this has been a uh, what 36 year journey yeah. into meeting God. Yeah, which in the in the uh, course of how long I'm actually going to get to know Him is nothing. <laughs> yeah, blip. <laughs> it's a total blip. And uh, but he continues to introduce himself to me and reveal himself to me, and and uh, it is uh, so. It is a a revelatory type thing, Mm. you know. Uh, And and I have I have had to sometimes accept that, great, graciously, gratefully, excitedly. Because the view of God that I was handed as a boy, that that little church view that I was handed, was probably very much like a lot of us were handed. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't mean to project that onto anybody else who might hear this, but uh, the the view that I was handed was God was... He was definitely scary. Yeah. Uh, wrathful, distant, apathetic, uh, and... On top of all those things, probably most of all, very, very disappointed in mm. in little Greggy. Yeah, yeah, very disappointed in little Greggy. And it was a performance oriented religion that I was handed um, by my parents, who were handed that performance oriented right. religion right. by their parents. You know, so I had very little idea who God was. Mm. Very little idea who God was. And I came into, uh, I came in very suspect that God would even want to help me when I got sober. Uh, but this group of people began to do some things for me that I, it was totally unexpected. I expected to find a bunch of old guys drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. Yeah, there was some of that. Sure, but there were a lot of young people like me. And, uh, and they said to me, let us love you till you can love yourself. And I thought, dude, I love myself. <laughs> you don't need to do that. You know, I mean, I, I still had this, I, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And we got to do this alone and this rugged individualism that we have, you know, in our country and in our culture. And, uh, and I realized probably a year into it, I didn't love myself at all. Mm. I was trying to destroy myself with alcohol yeah. and cigarettes right. and and weed when I had it. Of course, I stopped that probably 10 years before. Yeah. It was not my deal anymore. But, uh, and wayward living, you know, I was destroying myself. Yeah. So I didn't really love myself. I didn't know how to do that, you know. Um, I knew how to console myself. Mm. I, I knew consolation because i had seen enough desolation mm-hmm. that i as as a reaction to the desolation that i watched in the world and in my own heart i i had learned how to console myself mm-hmm. with these things yeah with these temporary fixes but I didn't understand that in order to love myself, I was going to have to give up the right to console myself with those mm. things. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And and that by loving myself, I I was going to forego this pleasure or that pleasure or this thing, which seemed totally antithetical yeah, to right? you know to what I wanted to do, what my f- I'll put it in uh, spiritual terms again. What my flesh yeah. continued to want to do was, hey man, we can figure out a way to drink and be safe.
1: <laughs> Our flesh only knows like all gas, no breaks. You know, <laughs> and it's exactly, just like yeah. it. It's only good to just add to get. You know, to like to to right. get um, to acquire, and it it's yeah. that's why fasting. And those mm-hmm. discipline type things, it doesn't make sense to our flesh, right. because why would that be good for me? Right. No food is good for me. I need to eat more food, right. and it's like, well, no, you need a break from the food right. at times. Like you need to say no, and I mean, it's it's us with food. It's us with parenting, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we we always want to just give the kid more, give them what they want, give them, and it's right. and it's it doesn't make sense to us to our flesh to wait not give the kid something yeah. they want well then how are they going to know that you love them you know yeah. we don't it that's spoiling you know and we spoil ourselves right?
0: right right and I was so uninformed that I didn't understand that those disciplines weren't given to us to get us in good with God mm. I, that's what I used to think Oh man, I'm gonna fast, and God's really gonna like me. He's gonna be so impressed. He's gonna, oh dude, oh, I, yeah. he needs this. Yeah. <laughs> he needs, he this. needs this so that he can like me. Yeah. And I didn't realize that they were what the old masters called the mortification of the flesh. You That's know, right. to yeah. in order to to let the flesh know who's boss. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't figure that out. Of course I. I rarely have figured anything out. Yeah, In retrospect, I look back and go, I didn't figure much out. It had to be shown. Yeah, It had to be revealed to me yeah. through Scripture or just like, you know, the light bulb going off, yeah. the Spirit saying, hey, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, yeah, but uh, that's a – I love the way you said it, though. That these disciplines are to let the flesh, you know, to rule the flesh with the spirit. Right. That's what I heard you say. All throughout this, have you read
1: uh, Live No Lies by John Mark Comer? Uh-uh. Now it's it's totally, uh, the framework is from someone else. I think it's, I think Dallas Willard talks about this, and I think it's old school. Like, it's Desert Fathers old school, but they talk about, he talks about... um, the world, the flesh, and the devil, Okay. right? Those three right. that are, those are our great enemies right. of us, uh, of our spiritual vitality and vibrancy. <clears throat> and as you've been talking, I've been thinking all about the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, hmm. you know, it's like our flesh wants to head the wrong way in the world. Everyone else's flesh combined. It just goes, yeah helps you know it's this environment that we that we swim in and the devil is is steering and pushing the whole Mm -hmm. thing and um and jesus responds to all three you know yeah yeah but
0: that flesh one was difficult for me um i again i mentioned i had a, a mentor in this whole program and one of the first things he told me he he took me out to lunch for our first meeting, and he said, uh, "He said two things that stuck with me. One, um, your brain is your enemy. I really had to. I really wrestled with that because my brain had gotten me good grades. That's my right. Brain had gotten me sales, and my brain had gotten me, but my brain was actually it wasn't going to save me from this, mm. and I wasn't going to figure this out. Mm. I, this was." I needed a spiritual answer for a physical problem. Hmm. I, there was no, not going to be a figuring this out. Okay, um, I wasn't ever going to figure out how to how to live like a sober man, for instance. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing he said, he said, uh, at the near the end of lunch, he goes, "I want you to go home, and look in the mirror. And while you're looking in the mirror, I want you to repeat this: There is a God, and you're not Him. There is a God, and you're not Him." And I thought, that's not going to last very long because I knew he was right, you know. And I felt I did it. I felt kind of dumb doing it. Yeah. But I, I wasn't in charge anymore. Mm. I I was so desperate I was willing to do whatever dumb thing they told me to do, and there were a lot of things that seemed, uh, very, counterintuitive, to live in a spiritual way. Yeah. You know, as as. As a, a thinking man in this mm. in this culture, yeah, there were some things you know that seemed, well, like Paul says, foolish, yeah. But they weren't. They were they were wise. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So
1: at some point, you start living as a sober man. God gets a hold of you. How in the world did you get to uh, to Joplin, Missouri? get to where we're at today
0: about a year after I got sober I I was felt like I was a little bit more put together and that I needed more input spiritually than I was getting at the time and I and I really felt like I was being called back into the church at Mm -hmm. some level yeah I didn't know what that meant yeah and I had a lot of questions yeah and I had somehow come across this book called 88 Reasons the Lord is Coming Back in 88. <laughs> Have you heard about no. this? Oh, my gosh.
1: Is it the prequel to 89 Reasons Why the Lord
0: is Coming Back in 89? It, it is, because <laughs> Edgar Wisnant, the guy who wrote the book, said, well, I just misfigured it. So he, <laughs> he wrote the second book. But that book I read, now, through it, I'm going, oh man, I'm not ready.
1: Now, what did he do with the year 2000? <laughs> <laughs> he, Zero he reasons was, why the Lord's coming back. I think back he in. was dead by the uh, Of course. I uh, don't think
0: Edgar is around anymore. <clears throat> but he, I read the book and I was convinced because, of, man, it was, dude, he knew more than I did. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> and I got. Snake
1: oil salesmen uh, can communicate pretty clearly sometimes. Hey,
0: the fear. Hey. You know, Romans eight twenty eight. 28, God causes all things to work together for yeah. good. Well, that book drove me to church. Yeah. And drove me right into the office of uh, a man named Ron Carter. <coughs> I don't know if you've heard of Ron Carter. Ron Carter uh, was uh, an Ozark grad and he was on um, staff there. And then he began uh, preaching in Los Angeles. Hmm. area, and then moved up to Napa and was preaching at First Christian Church in Napa. Hmm. And that's where I walked down to. Yeah. And I listened to him one Sunday, and I thought, this guy knows things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and it was alive, Hmm. and it was flesh and blood alive. It wasn't like these were um, cartoon characters or Marvel movie superheroes. Or these were people that lived way before the time I did who struggled with real things yeah. and, and who were having an encounter with the God of the universe mm. that um, I desired. I was going, I want that. I want this encounter because I I could identify with some of their struggles, you know, because I had, I was living them. I I was living as far uh, uh, as wayward as some of them were, you know? And I desired to have a heart pointed in the right direction because there were people that he was talking about from that pulpit that were, had integrity. And I knew I, I lacked that, but I wanted it. Yeah. So I made an appointment with him and picked his brain for a while. And Ron was wise enough to answer all the questions he felt I ought to know and leave some unanswered that he felt like I needed to find out. Yeah. Um, And I flirted with that church for a year. I would go, and then I'd get away, and then I'd go, and then I'd get away, and then I (coughs) finally—excuse, sorry—and then I finally decided I'm going to go, and uh, I kind of jumped in with both feet. Uh, Joined the worship team, started playing bass guitar and acoustic guitar for them. Uh, We had a men's group that one of the guys said, hey, we're going on a weekend retreat, and I'm just inviting random guys that I either... Some of them I know, some of them I don't know. Would you like to go? I didn't know who this was. Um, in, uh, I heard later that he just had prayed. Who do I take? Yeah, And he started inviting guys that he felt that God was leading. So I ended up on this trip. There were 12 men on that trip, and I, I don't know if he planned that, Or I know God planned it. Yeah. That's what it was. And I had two very lifelong friends come out of that trip. Wow. I can also contact some of the other guys today, 35 years later. Yeah. And they know me, you know, and would say, what do you need? Yeah. And that was just a weekend trip. Yeah. And we went up to a place called the Lord's Land. And it was uh, a little acreage up on the coast of uh, Northern California, and uh, it was run by a woman named Sabina Bell. She was from Germany. She had escaped from World War II and moved out to California and had met her husband, who was a movie mogul there, and uh, she was an atheist and, uh, but she was into serving, hmm. uh, ended up somewhere along the line, moving up to San Francisco and opening up a soup kitchen. And, uh, she and her husband parted ways and she was running a soup kitchen in San Francisco during the heyday, summer love type stuff, 69, 68, 69, 70. And, uh, I don't know how they acquired this land, but she got this land and it wasn't called the Lord's land at first, but she made it a hippie enclave, kind of a commune thing. For anybody who's passing through, she would, you know, take care of them and then send them on their way. Mm. And this Christian guy came through uh, one time and they got into a conversation about Jesus and he told her how blind she was in in those terms, yeah, and she kicked him, <laughs> kicked him out, and uh, he went up the coast, and then when he was coming back down through, he stopped again and reminded her how blind she was, <laughs> and uh, that kick-started her imagination, I think, and maybe her spiritual mm. desire, and she became a Christian. Wow, and uh, and renamed this place the Lord's Land and made it a retreat for Christians there, and I met. Two of my greatest friends on that trip, and one of them is still, I just called him last week. Yeah. Uh, he's in his 80s now, and I, I'm nearing my 70s, so we've been friends for a long, long time. Yeah. And uh, that really kind of started uh, even a deeper desire for the Lord, mm. you know, um, and, and for what He had for me. And uh, slowly but surely, he was, he was, rechanging. You know, he grabbed the rudder and started getting me on the right path. Yeah. Um, so that happened. Uh, Sabina Bell ended up going back to Dresden. If you want to look her up, she is called the Mother Teresa of Dresden, mm. and went back to Dresden to take care of, of uh, uh, children who uh, were homeless there. Wow. Uh, and uh, and left quite a legacy. Uh, hmm. she, she was an amazing woman. We heard that story one night in one of the most spiritually, I don't know, you know how when you know the spirit is there yeah, and it's like everything kind of gets quiet mm. and everything else gets pushed back and it's just you're there and it's like you're riveted. Yeah, And that's when she was telling her story, it was like something's going on.
1: Yeah. It's like the Lord burns that into your memory. Yeah, yeah, and
0: it's still there. I can yeah. still see her. Um, she's a, she's a part of my story. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, when I when I go and speak, that's she comes up. You know, she's part of our story. Yeah. Um, so that happened, and then we went on a, a, a retreat with a man who does uh, retreats for men of uh, my ilk, uh, and his name is Father Tom. Mm. Some people know him as Tom Weston, uh, but he goes by Father Tom, and he does retreats for uh, people in recovery. And, uh, and that was spiritually uh, mm. enlightening and encouraging and growing and, uh, and amazing. So those, those two guys really, really helped us. We had a group of men, uh, we called ourselves Sasto, which means some are sicker than others <laughs> and uh, and that group yeah. is still going yeah yeah 36 years later Wow and I think it started 38 years ago maybe maybe 40 now. yeah but that group meets every Tuesday night in the Napa Valley mm. group of men they meet it keep meeting so yeah I love it Anyway, so uh, Ron kind of took me under his wing during that period of time that we were doing, you know, and God was kind of growing me and he was real gentle about it, you know, and and introducing me to himself in a way that I didn't expect. He was not disappointed in me. Mm. He was not wrathful. He was not distant. He was not apathetic. Yeah. He was not any of the things that I had learned that he was when I was growing up. So uh, my, my mind was shifting. I will say this. I still couldn't read the Bible and not see that bill of goods that I was sold when I was a kid. Right. The Bible still looked like this legal book of rules and you know even though ron had been preaching in a way that was helping me see some things and i still had this mindset mm-hmm. that you know the bible was somehow more rigid yeah. than the god that i was being introduced to
1: well and it's like you almost sit there and think ron has a pair of glasses that he can see into this text in a way that i can't so True. i'm going to listen to his sermons or to read the bible on my own I just see it. it's just archaic. I don't it get it. It wasn't working, you know. So <laughs> yeah. I'm going to listen to these preachers yeah. who kind of translate it for me. Right. In Into a way that kind of is helpful and makes sense. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It took nine years. Yeah. From the time that I quit drinking to the time where everything clicked into place. Mm. And, and that didn't happen because of my hard work. Yeah. That happened because I started begging God to help me because yeah. I couldn't see. Yeah. I could not see. I, uh, I was 37. I was 36, actually. And, and I was sitting in a convention in New York City. We were doing dental sales. And I'm uh, sitting in a convention in New York City. And uh, I think that was right. I think I got the time right. Anyway, uh, I thought, do I really want to be doing this for the rest of my life? I had been doing community meditations, playing on, you know, uh, Praise Band and doing all this stuff. And it was fun and I enjoyed it. And I, I, I was getting some good feedback from, you know, the, the spiritual stuff that I was sharing with other people. And I thought, and you know, here I am in New York City doing this convention. And there's nobody in the hall. It was Sunday morning. And I'm going, ah, dude, I don't want to be. And, and I had this thought cross my mind. I do not want to be 80 years old in a rocking chair wondering what if.
1: Mm.
0: What if I had done, taken a different path? Mm. So I went back, and I'm talking to Ron, and we went out to breakfast at this uh, place in the Napa Valley. It's in Napa called the Buttercream Bakery, and that's we we would have breakfast there. And I'm eating my oatmeal, and he's eating whatever, and he looks at me, and I'm telling him, I don't know if I want to keep doing this you know, with my life, with the dental field. It, it's not given me any psychic rewards here. You know, I mean, financially, it was great, but it's not, I'm not getting what I think I might need here. And he goes, have you ever thought about going into the ministry? And I, I was in shock. I mean, it was like the covers had been ripped off of my soul. And I'm going, how did he know? Mm. How did he know? And, and I, I was, I've been speechless a few times in my life. I know it might be hard to believe, but that was one of them. Yeah. Totally. I almost start crying when he, when he asked me, uh, I, it was like I had been found out. Uh, honestly, I thought I disqualified myself for the ministry by all of the stuff, stunts I pulled earlier, you know, and, and what a sham I was. Yeah. And, uh, so I started investigating it with him mm-hmm. and I came out here to Ozark. He, of course, with his Ozark background and, and uh, uh, in history, he kind of steered me that direction, introduced me to Ken Eidelman at uh, Ozark Christian College. I flew out here, spent a week at the college. I lived in one of the uh, trailers at uh, Married Student Housing, you know, and um, I liked it. I like the classes I went to, and I thought, I need these nuts and bolts. Hmm. I felt like I was knowing God better, but I need these nuts and bolts. I really Hmm. do. And so um, I went back uh, to work. I told my dad, I said, I think I'm going to go to college again, and and, uh, I'm not going to leave for a year. Hmm. I'll, you know, August the next year. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to reenter school. And that's what I did.
1: What did he say to, you're not going to leave for a year? Was he grateful for that? Did he press you towards, no, go ahead? Or how did he respond to the idea of you, one, going back to college, and two, going into ministry? He Don't he, you know you're not going to make any money, Greg?
0: He didn't. You know, my dad was, in some ways, in in this respect with his with his children, he was he was better at being a dad than I've been sometimes Hmm. because he didn't fight me on it. Hmm. He, he wanted me to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. As long as it wasn't going to, you know, destroy anything he wanted. He wanted for me what I wanted. And, and, uh, he, the only thing he asked was, um, and I say that that way because I'm a helicopter dad, and I want to make sure my kids are protected. And you're going to do what? You're going to go where? You can, you know? And I forget they have a God too sometimes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, but he said, uh, "Would there have been anything that I could have done to keep you here?" And I said, mm. "No, Dad. I said it's not you, and it's not this job." What
1: a good, what a humble question.
0: Yeah, I know. Sometimes your parents are more put together than you think they are, you know? And it, and, and that was one of those times it was like, thanks dad. So, um, I came to Ozark, spent five years here. And, uh, in the middle of my junior year, I had the question. I was, it might've been my sophomore year, it Was it was right in there, junior it was my third year, so mm-hmm. what do they call that—the middler year? <laughs> I was here five years. Yeah, I was already preaching. I had a preaching point down in North Miami. You know, I said between me and Leon Weiss, we got the whole place covered. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we had about twenty people in in my congregation. Yeah, and uh, I was preaching every week, but man, I wasn't. I still wasn't getting it. I was still looking at this book as this this rigid. Book of Rules, and and I was experiencing God in this such a freeing, beautiful way, and I can't make these things match. Mm. And I'm I'm in a a, a congregation of people, and not, I'm not talking about the church I was preaching in. I'm in with a, a group of free, beautiful, loving people of integrity yeah people who are having an active uh experience with the god of the universe I mean they are really you know and and they're deep and it's and I'm going I'm reading this book man and it's I don't see it where is this God that I'm experiencing in this book that people tell me he's he's in here I went home one day from school and I literally threw myself on my bed in tears and I said, God, I said, I don't I don't see you, the God of my understanding in this book, the Bible. So you're going to ha- have to either teach me or send me back to California, and give me my old job back or kill me because Mm -hmm. there's nothing else. Three options. I'm giving (laughs) you three options. There was a uh, web service at the time called Prodigy.net. It was like a Yahoo deal, and they had chat rooms. Literally one week later, I was in a Christian chat room, you know, on a barely uh, uh, workable bandwidth (laughs) of Yeah, you know, and I ran into this guy, uh, and we started talking back and forth about the Lord. And and uh, I'll shorten this story to say this, that was the encounter I needed. And he was a well-known author. Uh, I don't, he didn't go by his name there, so I didn't know at the time. But he took me under his wing for the next year. Wow. And he revealed to me what had been revealed to him. He was also in recovery. And uh, he revealed to me what, had been, what the Lord had revealed to him. And it started with the first story in the Bible uh, with Adam and Eve. And he, he would ask me questions about these stories. And he said, what do you see that was the first thing that happened after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden after they fell? And disobeyed God. And I said, Well, God kicked him out of the garden. He goes, That's not what happened first. And he I said, Okay, so you tell me, because I was I needed I was so I was so broken still. And he said, They put on leaves to cover themselves and the very first thing God did was he came and he dressed them better than they could dress themselves. And I said, I never really paid attention to that. He goes, Greg, it's called Grace. Mm -hmm. And it's all over the Bible when you look for it. But people miss it every time they pick this book up. They miss it every time. And he said, it's all over the place. And that shifted. That was the first shift. And the second shift came when he had me try for 10 seconds because that's all he thought I could do (laughs) to believe that the war between me and God was over and that that war had ended at the cross and it wasn't the cross plus all of my performance he said can you just for 10 seconds he goes I'll time it just for 10 seconds believe that the war between you and God is over and that it ended at the cross And then the third shift was, he asked me one day, he goes, you seem really busy. (laughs) I said, I I am. He goes, and you seem tired. And I said, would you talk on the phone or would you like in the chat room? We would talk in the chat room. We would get our own chat in our own side chat Mm -hmm. and talk. We ended up talking on the phone. We ended up meeting uh, Northwest Arkansas. He had a, he had a speaking engagement down there Hmm. and you would know him if I said his name, but I'd rather just leave this, you know. a a little magic in this but the third shift in the in probably all of all of these were big shifts but the third shift was this he said you seem really tired and i said i am i said i'm really tired he goes well why are you tired what's going on and i said honestly i'm trying to give my life to jesus and it's wearing me out (laughs) and he said greg you know it never says give your life to jesus in the bible And my mind went to the Bible immediately, and I'm flipping through the pages going, it's in my mind, and I'm going, it says it in there somewhere. Because every minister I've ever heard and every televangelist and every radio guy I've ever heard has always said at the end of the sermon, just give your life to Jesus. And he goes, Greg, it's not in there. He said, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life that has come down out of heaven, and I have come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. So, your job, Greg, is not to give your life to Jesus, it's to get your life from Jesus. I don't know what that does to people when I tell that story, but I know what it did to me. My head exploded. I mean, it was such a paradigm shift in my head and my heart at the time. I just stopped dead in my tracks. And I, I'm not even sure to tell you what I thought at that time. I know what I felt. Yeah, I think I felt, oh, this is the easiest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have been working so hard to get God to like me and so hard to perform for him and so hard to, you know, and then all of a sudden... And then I heard him, Jesus saying to the Pharisees, "You have no life within yourselves." Mm-hmm. And I thought, "What am I trying to give him? Yeah, if I number one don't have any life within myself, yeah, within myself, and yeah. number two, I'm trying to give him my sin, aren't I? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Here, Jesus, take this problem. Here, Jesus, take this behavior. Here, Jesus. Right. T- and and I and I heard him saying to me, not audibly, but, dude, I took all that stuff 2000 years ago at the cross. I don't want that stuff. I took that stuff many years ago. Right. I want, I have something for you. Yeah. And I went, it just, it stopped me dead in my tracks. Yeah. Yeah. It just, so those were the three things that my friend, the three big reveals that he, he taught me. Yeah. And, and from then on, it's really been a whole different, you know, um, I mean, I think I was fit for heaven because of what Jesus did before I knew this stuff. You yeah. know, yeah. I didn't have to know that stuff yeah. to go to heaven, but God saw fit that mm. you know I I was. He gave me a real peace. Yeah, about Him, right, and about all this. You know, mm. so that was that was a true intercept with Ron, and then with this this, yeah. this man I met. You know, yeah. And there have been other mentors that have come into my life right. like that, that I've really needed, mm. you know. Uh, so, yeah, like he's always he's always provided a, a good male example for me. Yeah. You know, especially now that my dad's and I are disconnected by death, yeah. you know, that he's moved on. But, uh, yeah, it's I, I've never been able to do this alone. Mm. You know, and I'm gl- I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, that I've been open to, you know, having a mentor. That's yeah, yeah, that's good. It's grace. Mm-hmm. So where did Carrie come along? Met Carrie. <clears throat> I say we disagree on this. I say the second year. She says we met in the first year. I <clears throat> I had started playing with a band on campus called Elijah Cry, and they were you know kind of an alternative Christian rock band, and uh, I was playing bass for them, and I was the old guy, you know I was prime student. <laughs> <clears throat> Carrie was dating the lead guitar player, uh, whose name was also Greg, so she didn't have a big huge shift. <laughs> She's got a type. <laughs> She's got a type. Yeah. If they've got a stringed instrument and they're named Greg, yeah. Watch out. <clears throat> Look out. So <laughs> anyway, I had, was having my own Waterloo, I guess, about relationships. And I was alone here um, and I was just having my own deal. Like maybe I shouldn't be in a relationship at all. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I... I pulled back and I wasn't in one and I said okay God if you want me to be like Paul
1: <laughs> yeah
0: I'll try <laughs> you know it's like didn't really want to be but okay yeah I'll uh, and sophomore year I'm we're setting up the band and here comes Carrie walking into the room and I saw her and I went oh, wow you know I mean it was like that's she's impressive. She was, you know, she came in, take charge kind of woman. I, she was, you know, and uh, I was like, going, eh, I'd like to kind of maybe get to know her, but I don't know who she is. And then I found out she's dating the lead guitarist. <laughs> I went, oh, right. well, that's okay. I can, you know, I can say pass, you know, I mean, I wasn't going to try and do anything with that. And so the, over the next few months, I watched them just disintegrate. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, and I had nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. And I watched that relationship just disintegrating. In fact, I mentioned to him one time, I said, you're going to lose her. Yeah. Keep this up. And he told me to butt out in no uncertain terms. I said, okay, I, I'll wait. Yeah. <laughs> gladly. Yeah. Yeah. Because he didn't want to change. So anyway, um, I got a phone call over the summer from her. And we spent an hour on the phone. And she hung up and she said, if I spend any more time with that man, I'm going to marry him. Mm. And I thought, hey, they've broken up. So I might as well spend some time with her. And we started spending time together. We spent a lot of time together. We spent three and a half years together before we got married, <clears throat> which I think for us was really healthy. Yeah. For me, it was essential. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. For me, it was essential. Yeah. And, uh, and then we got married, um, moved to Louisiana for four years, took a ministry down there in Alexandria, Louisiana. It was 90 minutes from her uh, parents' place, which was perfect. And uh, I started preaching in Alexandria, Louisiana, at Alexandria Christian Church. And uh, we had kind of planned a family, you know, when we wanted to start that and everything. And it was, I think it was October. We had moved down there in August, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: roughly July, August. And I think it was October, and Carrie comes to me and says, what do you want for your birthday? And my birthday's not until July. And I said... Carrie, my birthday's not until June. <gasps> Are you pregnant? <laughs> so Emma's on the way. Okay. We danced around the living room. It was awesome and uh, very exciting. And Emma, Emma came in July and uh, just, and, and it was so, it's been so great because I know that if I had had children when I was in my 20s, we're talking, who knows? Yeah. Jail prison they they would have been so messed up I was so messed up and uh so I have my em, uh, Emma came I was 41 when first child it's been perfect you know mm-hmm. and Emma and I were great you know I mean we really are connected and she and I leave later this year for Utah for a trip just us together mm-hmm. so I'm so grateful to be a little bit older dad yeah and to have this uh, good uh, relationship with my daughter, you know, yeah, and she's, she's amazing. And she's, she's a, a lot of the things that I'm not, both of my children are. Yeah. They're, they, uh, they are so many things and have so much on the ball that I didn't have in my twenties mm. that I get to stand back and I'm not jealous. I'm just proud, you yeah. know, it's just like, oh, and thank you, God. You know, for not letting them suffer the way I, you yeah, know, yeah. the way I treated myself through that. So, yeah. and we've been able to do some things, you know, with our children that, that I I really wanted to do. I, As I mentioned earlier in this whole thing, I moved around a lot, you know, yeah. after, from the time I was 10 years old to the time I was 18. And that really was hard, you know, going into new schools and, you know, you're always in a fight. Yeah, <laughs> and and they would do it this way. You and him are gonna fight because you're about the same size. So after school, we're all gonna watch you you two because we sized you up and yeah. you two are, you know. And of course, the other kids going. I don't want to fight anybody either. <laughs> but you got all these bigger guys standing around, gonna beat you if you don't, right? So okay, well, you go roll around in the dirt for a while after school. Yeah, but yeah. So you know, uh, I wanted my kids to be in the same school, K through twelve. We've been able to do that. Hmm. God, God, you know, provided for us to be able to stay here in Southwest Missouri and do yeah. that. They went to CJ. They went to CJ. Yeah. yeah, K through twelve, both of them. Yep. They both went to Ozark. Uh, Emma graduated from Ozark, uh, and Claire is in her last year and a half. Yeah. Yep. Uh, she, oh, she'll have two more semesters after this yeah. one. So yeah. So, uh, and uh, and they're both doing they're both doing well. You know. Yeah. So, uh, life is good. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been able to work, you know, uh, all the way through, um, God moved us back here from Alexandria. Mm -hmm. That was a whole whole other God deal. Um, I remember the phone call that came out of the blue from a guy that I had played one afternoon in a studio with as we were Recording for a friend of a mutual friend of ours wanted to do some recording, and invited us to come to this studio in Oklahoma. And we went down there, did the recording. I got a call. This was years later from this, uh, the drummer, and he said, uh, "Hey, uh, I don't know where you are in your ministry, but are you looking for a place to preach?" Yeah. And we had just told the elders a month earlier that. That we thought our ministry was done in Alexandria and we were going to start looking around. And uh, he said he was from Carl Junction and that they had a church there and they were looking for a minister. So we, it was like, God did that. Yeah. I mean, I'm here because God did that. Yeah. We didn't do that. Yeah. We just put it in our resume. And uh, they, Apparently had a number of resumes, and Carrie was worried about getting the job. And I, I, I don't know why I had this moment of clarity because I'm usually the one who's more anxious. Yeah. And I said, "Hey, if God wants us to have it, we already have it." Yeah. And I felt total peace about it. Yeah. That's not me usually. Yeah. Usually, I'm a little bit more anxious about stuff. Yeah. So we came up here and and did that uh, for seven years, um, and then I got a phone call from. Uh, Randy Garris, and the men here at College Heights. And uh, they said, we heard you were available. And I, long story short, I said, what for? And they said, we'd like you to run our Celebrate Recovery program here at College Mm -hmm. Heights. Mm -hmm. I did that for seven years. Yeah, And uh, at the same time, I was doing a supply preaching around the area, everywhere from McCune, Kansas, to Foster Missouri. Uh, and then uh, Jay St. Clair called me, and Jay said, "How'd you like to come to work for God's resort?" So I spent four years there. And that was uh, and I spent four years doing um, several things for them, but mostly uh, we developed a stability plan for people who are transitioning out of difficult places in their life to healthier places. And I also was their life transition coordinator. So I I would uh, help people walk through the stability plan to get their lives situated. And then um, COVID came, sent us all home for a while. Yeah. Um, I had a heart attack in January three years ago uh, in the middle of covid and uh, I got stuck at home for a year after that. I mean, I was, I was pretty banged up. That was a rough year. Yeah. And I decided I couldn't sit at home anymore. I needed to be doing something. And I had been on the board of the Recovery Outreach Community Center here in town uh, that was just getting its wheels rolling. And I went down and talked to Teddy Steen, who was the executive director there. And I said, Teddy, I'm I'm recovering from this heart attack that I've had, and I'm still trying to get my, uh, self situated. Uh, do you think I could come down here and spend a couple hours a day, uh, doing certified peer specialists, which I have qualified for already. Yeah. I was, uh, I had gotten my certificate from the state of Missouri to do peer counseling or peer support. And, uh, Teddy said, "Yeah, come on down." So, uh, a couple of months later, when I felt up to it, I went down to the Rock and um, started working there two hours a day, five days a week. Mm. And a week and a half after I got there, the operations director <laughs> resigned. So I was now I was working twenty five to 30, <laughs> 35 hours a week, and that's where I've been ever since. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm still at the Rock right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love it, man. Yeah, yeah. So that's that kind of hopefully put yeah a lot of things into perspective. Yeah, that was a lot. I'm s-
1: <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. That's why we're doing this. What? Yeah. Uh, what word of encouragement, exhortation, blessing might you have for your church family here at College, College Heights?
0: I several things, but I think. I think the main thing is find someone if you're if you're feeling like separated or isolated find that one person that you can trust Mm. that you can really trust with confidentiality that you can tell things to that you need to that you need to stop carrying yeah I think Many of our failures come from the fact that that Jesus says today has enough trouble of its own. Yeah, and it really does. Yeah. I mean, I look around at all the circumstantial stuff going on in my life, and I'm going, I don't know, man. I I don't think one more thing could be on my plate today. Yeah. Okay. And I and I access the turmoil inside, and I'm thinking, yeah, today really does have enough trouble yeah. of its own. Yeah. Uh, Paul talks about that, you know, we have pressures without and fears within. There's it's all happening. And if we're carrying stuff, baggage mm. from our past yeah. into today, it's way too much for our little souls to to yeah. handle, you know. <clears throat> and 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 you add on to that all of the grief and uh, trouble that you find on the news or even in the drama that you see on Facebook. We've got we're weighed down with so much stuff. Yeah. We, I believe, we have to find that one person or a small group of people that we can really trust, that we can talk to and yeah. be transparent with, mm. and allow ourselves to, to be real. Yeah. And, and say those three hardest words in the English language mm. I need help. Yeah. Um, one of my uh, former uh, bosses used to say, no one's gonna do it for you, but you cannot do it alone. Mm. And I think we have too many people trying to do it alone and trying to trying to look good for each other while they're yeah. doing it. you know um, <laughs> we have a We have a saying uh, in the groups I come out of, you know fear can stand for false evidence appearing real, mm-hmm. or it can stand for forget everything and run. Uh, I like the uh, frantic effort to appear recovered, yeah, you know. Yeah, <clears throat> and that really is what I think a lot of us do. So, an encouraging word uh, to our church family, I would say, if you can find someone and try to to find a uh, someone or uh, some group of people where you can be yourself and yeah. be real, yeah, you will find a freedom in that that is, mm. is uh, so remarkable. You yeah. Know? Uh, so yeah, I I encourage that greatly.
1: Yeah. Love it. I love it, brother. Well, thank you for your time today. Thank yeah. you for your story and, and
0: thanks so for having me to share it. Yeah. This has been very cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate well, church it. people, we love you. This has been Greg and Colby. We'll see you soon.